something different this way comes something something different something different something different this way comes something something different something different welcome to the being an ancestor edition the final edition of this season of something different this way comes Featuring the marvelous Betty Carpick. I'm Heather McLeod. Thank you for listening. And thank you in particular if you've chosen to listen to all eight editions before this one, because this first season of Something Different This Way Comes was a journey. A journey and a medicine. And today we bring it home. launched this podcast first and foremost to to wield a toolbox I know how to use and love to use my voice music research and conversational skills to do something about climate change to understand better what will change is changing here and to clarify what I can help make happen to make those changes give us more than we will lose Because change, even change that's guaranteed to lose us precious things, change that we cannot entirely stop or reverse, change is also an opportunity for improvement, to do better. So, something different this way comes. This season has sought out, what does good look like? And I can now imagine a better world, the better future. I can help us steer towards by my choices of what to say and what I do and and what I suggest. That is the journey this podcast took me on through these nine editions this first season, and I want to thank you for joining me on it. But where does it leave us? How do we rap? I thought about that all season. Who to ask for this final conversation? I thought about it as I prepared to launch, as I did all my research, and as the podcast unfolded. And finally, last week, I decided. I knew who I wanted to be my final guest, and I asked Betty Karpik to share with me this final conversation of the season, which was great. It was so wonderful. It was so helpful and inspiring and exactly where I wanted us to come home to. And I'm so excited to share it with you. Something different this way comes, 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 something different, something, something different, something, something different, something, something, something different this way comes. But that is not all I have for you today. I also have another conversation with Ben and Sam. Because, you see, I wanted to, to review all the nine conversations, all the nine revelations, all the nine key takeaways I took away from this season. And I thought, what better way to do it than in conversation with Ben and Sam, who launched this whole journey and have joined me on it all the way along. So after... The conversation with Betty, 
I'll come back and give you a sort of review and chat with Ben and Sam. First, let me tell you a little bit about Betty Karpik. I've known Betty Karpik for about 17 years. <laughs> I did a documentary for CBC Radio in 2005 about Slow Food Superior, a new group starting in Thunder Bay that had organized a dinner at the Good News Cafe. It showcased locally produced food and the farmers who produced it. And that is where I met Betty Karpik for the very first time. She was one of the people who made that happen. Most recently, I've bumped into her most often at her, at her son's amazing store, The Cheese Encounter on Algoma. Love that place. It's so, so good. <laughs> but I've gotten to know her best as a, as a force for change, as a quiet, joyous activist, environmentalist. She's an artist who works with natural materials, ink she makes from, from living plants and So I was, I was so hoping she would say yes when I asked if she'd be, she'd be my guest. And not only did she say yes, she invited me to her home as her guest. And we met in her kitchen. She poured, she poured lovely tea, peppermint tea from, from the cheese encounter. And as her dog tap, tap, tapped around us, keeping a, a close eye on proceedings, we had the following conversation. I identify as being a northerner. I really am a northerner and that's so much a part of who I am and how I relate to the world. So I grew up in far northern Manitoba in a remote isolated community called Lynn Lake. My mom, who's Cree, uh, is from South Indian Lake. So her family were nomadic people who fished and trapped for their livelihood. And my dad, his family was Eastern European. So they were in the Paw. So Lynn Lake was a town where people came for health care. They came for supplies. Like it was a, a kind of beacon in the north before you had to go really leave the north to go to, say, the Paw or Winnipeg for care, probably. It was mostly around health care that people had to leave back then. So our house was, there was always people there from South Indian Lake uh, of all ages. And um, it was just kind of natural that there were a lot of people in our house. And also my mom and my dad took care of kids who had come, who were in the hospital, and then they weren't well enough to go home. So we had all these um little Cree kids all the time in our house. So, you know, the idea of family was very much elastic idea of family. Yeah. So getting to coming to Thunder Bay, I remember like the first day coming to Thunder Bay and seeing Lake Superior and knowing that as long as I was by a lake and I could see the lake, that I could be happy in a place. 
And now my mom used to say, I just need to see the water. And when I was a teenager, I had a teenager's response to that. <laughs> like, we just live a block away, like, <laughs> you know? And uh, so now, I mean, that's very much a part of my sort of kind of ritual and uh, kind of calming to see the lake and to be able to walk to the lake and be by the water and the creeks. And the water system in an urban environment is super lively and um, it's animated by all the nature around it. And it's exciting, but it's also not treated as special as it can be. but there's amazing diversity and and lots of some lovely spot I would say right in Thunder Bay you, you don't have to leave the city to connect with nature so I like that do you feel like you hear your mom like pretty regularly saying I just need to see the water I hear my mom and I mean I'm at an age where I am my mom and I'm my dad <laughs> <laughs> so all your relatives and ancestors are you're an embodiment of them and when you recognize that within yourself, you're also seeing how you are an ancestor. I try to remember, I don't want to be the scary ancestor saying that we're, <laughs> we're the impending doom is, <laughs> is nipping at our heels. I want to be the ancestor that says, look, <laughs> these might be solutions. These might be answers. This might be a way to have a conversation might be ways to be kind and gentle to each other and to to work together. That just resonates so much for me. First of all, that we're all ancestors. No matter what stage in our lives we're at, we are ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that we are building a legacy. So, you know, what's comfortable for today is so not as important as as what it's all adding up to through our sincerity and our actions and and our choices. That was really powerful for me, Betty. Thanks. Well, I think we often forget that what we are doing today and living today and creating today is our shared legacy. It doesn't have to be extraordinary. It can be ordinary as long as it's authentic and meaningful. Now, I also want to talk more about the land because I think of you as somebody who lives life very rooted, connected, aware, so take me into that, because that, that's so different from so many of us who live and are out of practice or don't even really know what it means to deeply be in a natural space. I get around by walking and biking, and I've never owned a car. I know how to drive a car in an emergency, I could. <laughs> There's nothing about a car that feels good to me. It feels like a violent kind of way to maneuver around the world. I, get it's faster but I just so because of the way I get around I see details I see a nuanced perspective of the world where I'm walking how I'm getting somewhere the people I meet I'm always talking to people and people talk to me because I'm on the street right I'm on the paths and if you're in a vehicle you miss out on a lot of those conversations also, because that's the way I get around, I feel I have to be more mindful about what I need and what I don't need and how much I can carry. So I think about that a lot. I think about my visible and my invisible 
abilities and disabilities in terms of how I get around because I rely on walking and biking. So it's each journey is not done by habit, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Your habit is, okay, what exactly am I doing here? Yeah. What exactly do I need and what don't I need? Uh-huh. In a very mindful to use, I, I, as soon as it's mindful, I'm like, oh, you know, ohm app on my phone. But I mean, like a real, like, this is a way to be thoughtful and, and pragmatic mm-hmm. in your daily, can I call it a discipline? It's a practice getting around that way. Um, and it has affected my arts practice because I like to say that I can go conduct a workshop and I can bring everything I need carrying them by walking or with my bike. So that means I try to think in a more granular way, and that is a really nice way that I can take my land-based arts practice out into the world, and I don't have to take it by vehicle. Like, it is truly land-based from, like, beginning to delivery. I also love how contrast that is to saying about things like, we're a tourist destination, we're a doorway to the north, we're so close to so much wild beauty. And you're saying, yeah, we're so close, open your door already, right? It's not something you have to travel to. It's something you have to notice more. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to experience the world in a sensory way and in a kind of artful way so that we can just enjoy a slower pace. We can just slow down and really enjoy a simpler way of living if we want to certainly during the early days of the pandemic, which I feel nostalgic for them because there was a real halting and a reckoning and then a slowing down. And people were walking, cycling, baking, cooking, making. And we might not have been doing some of those things in the way we were accustomed to, but we were doing them slower and in a more observant and connected way than we were before. And we were calling each other and getting to know our neighbors. Yeah, Yeah. so there was a lot of good that came out of that pretty harsh reminder about the climate crisis. Yeah, It was also a reminder of, of what's really important, what is essential. Yeah, and I think when we see where we live, it doesn't matter if it's a, a small town or an urban space, if we're really on the ground seeing it, then we can see the way we can make it a better place for all ages and abilities. Because a livable city or community is for the people who live there, not for the tourists. The promotion has to come from within so that we all feel that we have a place to be proud of and a place that we're proud to live in and that they'll care for it. Yeah. And that we're known in and valued in. This is my neighbor. This is my corner shop. Uh, This is my street. And this is the places I know well. Yeah. Here's my favorite tree. This is the creek. This is where I see deer and saw a rabbit. All those things can be within a, a city. It's not about grand and for many of us, unachievable ways to connect with the city. In this community on the shore of Lake Superior, we have this amazing trifecta. We have Lake Superior, we have the boreal forest, and then we have farmland. Like we have so much abundance and richness that we can protect 
and work collectively to take care of, to be stewards of. It's very distinctive, those three things. Can we celebrate that? (laughs) I love that. It's giving me such a wonderful sense of potential and of of security because of all that we already have. Um, But I'm going to go the whole other side of things. When we were chatting before I started recording, you used a phrase that just resonated. You said, this colonized planet. And often when I find myself fretting about how hard it can be to fix some of the things that just keep grinding what should be cared for, it's about systems historically rooted in colonialism and other atrocities. And I feel helpless until I think about the people that are also part of those systems. And most of them are good eggs. What does that make you think? Well, I mean, I have the lived experience in my own lifetime, in my mom's lifetime, in my relative's lifetime of seeing, you know, the damage that colonization and hierarchies in terms of thinking of economy can do because of the huge destruction that happened in northern Manitoba because of hydro development. What happened? In the 70s, the Churchill and Nelson rivers were diverted to provide hydroelectric power for the south so my mom's community of south indian lake and that's where my relatives lived and they still live there they were hunters and trappers and and fishermen and they lived a very self-sufficient life between winter camp and the summer camps and at one time they had the most successful whitefish fishery in north america before the hydro development in north america yeah that's huge I've seen documents since then that Hydro considered the people not working. They didn't consider that true work because they weren't in the kind of um, homogenized system of work. Yeah. Yeah, they were living on Self-sufficiency moves you out of those systems, and therefore somebody in the system can say, well, you don't count. But that's such a weird take on it (laughs) when you don't need. So the hundred or so people that lived in South Indian Lake were considered disposable for this project. There was definitely a fight put up, but it kind of came for naught, but it continues to this very day with some of my cousins continuing. And I mean, in some ways, I think that's helped us become advocates for change and for opening our eyes to what does it mean for a colonized hierarchical way of thinking to come into a community. What happened when the water was diverted? Like, how did that impact people's lives and Um, the space? The community of South Indian Lake had to move to higher ground. Was the higher ground where they'd ever lived before? No. So they left their community. They had to... They weren't going to get any kind of financial um, assistance, so they had poor quality housing. They didn't have the way of life. The shorelines were flooded. The whole ecosystem's affected. Shoreline debris falling into the lake that causes mercury contamination. The whole water table, all the fish, everything's affected. And consequently, if you can't do what you, you've done for centuries, and all of a sudden you have nothing to do, people are desperate. They're depressed, and they're sad, and they're voiceless. And societal problems are huge now recovering from that's not easy 
I feel like there is the active mourning and then there's the more subtle unspoken mourning that happens intergenerationally. And I feel that's been part of that community and it's been a part of communities, indigenous communities all around the world that have had that same kind of um, experience through uh, extractive industries moving in and really just rearranging everything for their own benefit. And if you have somebody who's been a trapper and a fisherman all their lives, you can't make them happier by giving them a maintenance job in a mill. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Yeah. There's a kind of normalization about land and water destruction. And that's not okay. That's not okay for the boreal forest, which are the breathing lungs of the planet. And it's not okay for all the communities around the world, in Canada and around the world, where drinking water is an issue. Like, drinking water and water is a valuable resource in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. Like, that just blows me away. Everything is moving too fast. All this destruction. And you were talking about the, the power of slow, of not taking a step till you've decided not just where you're going, but the best way this day to get there and what you really need to bring along. What a contrast that is to this. When you grow anything in a garden or you're nurturing something, I mean, it can be a plant, but it's also a person. We're both mothers. So when you're nurturing something that is slow and you can't you can't make it happen in a faster way and you're mindful of certain things and you're mindful of your successes and your mistakes and all these different things but you can't speed it up right Mm. um so it's about slowing down but it's about decision making about waste Mm. and need necessity and not sharing resources like I'm fortunate to live in a neighborhood if I need something I have people around me who who will help and it's reciprocal it's a reciprocal relational place to live and I I appreciate that because that's like small town Canada and small communities and everywhere where you're kind of looking out for each other you don't have a rake well I'm gonna lend you my rake I'm loving this because it's freeing up all this sense of how can we afford to do this? Mm -hmm. We can afford by not wasting and by sharing and by allowing things to heal, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to feeling we have to rush in there and grab what we need. There's a wisdom to the wild. It's the only way we can bring back balance is by re-enriching all of our wild wisdom um, and kind of getting out of the way of that wisdom. Yeah, and so if we help intergenerational, interdisciplinary, and inclusive communities to thrive, then we're all in a better place. So how do we do that? What's our place in that besides getting to know our neighbors, which is a great start? Mm -hmm. I think we need to stop tokenizing and romanticizing and think about authentic ways of connecting to people, all people. You know, I mean, the world is so rich and diverse. And if we can look at each other as human beings, each of us have different things to offer and we can learn and unlearn. And that's the way we can do it. We can fight against the system, but
But if we're not offering new solutions and new ways of doing things by setting examples, then we're sort of lost. But we can't forget our greatest entitlement as human beings is that we get to live on a planet and we get to enjoy this like amazing world of nature and all the spectacles of nature. Like, isn't it amazing that the sun comes up every morning and that there's the aurora borealis and there's tides and there's some tiny amazing little insect doing its own thing and a flower being part of a plant that we can eat. Like, it's all just amazing. We keep wanting to have something more than what we have right in front of us. Mm. I think we feel like entitled to have experiences that maybe are just leaving us empty instead of learning how to appreciate what we have in our own backyards, around our own selves. I think we forget that we are nature and that every time we take a breath, we're breathing nature. We're not a separate entity. It seems like we are. <laughs> I mean, there is a pressure to make us believe that we are, but we're not. We need to be humble about who we are and our role here. And if we look at time in the glacial way, wow, what an honor to have this time. If we're not really seeing the joy of living as a part of nature, then we're kind of missing something because we're not celebrating that. We can see all this joy and beauty and we can respond to it with kindness and compassion. It's there every single day, just without fail. <laughs> Everybody can have that connection to that relationship. We all can. I mean, we can dwell and blame the past and the structures, but that still gives that power of taking care of the climate to somebody greater than us. So if we can all think about our relationship to the climate crisis, and we all have different relationships with this crisis. People who are illiterate or have health issues or are struggling to survive have a different relationship than somebody like me who's like, oh, it's cool that I ride my bike and that's how I get around the world. Like, and then people in power who have money, like I want them to fuss up. <laughs> Just to humanize it and not to make it seem that the climate crisis can be solved by somebody else and that we're not all contributing. I contribute, you contribute. There's no way any of us are martyrs about caring for the planet. And it's not a competition. It's not no. going to be solved by competing. No, no. It's about joy. We undervalue joy. <laughs> We're looking for bigger things, more sensational things. And maybe that's why we try to exploit certain ways of being about being human. Like what? Joy, compassion. Hope even now like we shouldn't feel that we don't have agency to make change and we often do and I think that makes us sad because sometimes I see people who are in great heights of power is not wanting to hear what I want have to say or other people have to say 
but we have to remember that despite their wealth and power, they're humans. <laughs> and um, I feel like authentic voices, true voices, truth-telling voices, they get heard. And you might not think they get heard, and they might not be heard in the way that you imagine they should be heard, but they're heard. I love that. That's that's an invitation, right? To dare to say what you think is true, mm-hmm. not have to control how it's heard or what happens because it was said, but know that it was a good thing to do. Yeah. And I feel that for myself, as a person who's 64 years old, I want to remind young people that they can be empowered and emboldened by the things they do in their lives and that's how generations work like when we share intergenerationally we're giving the young people the artillery to move ahead in a stronger way like if we just say okay you youth you take care of this climate crisis like we're taking all of this shit we know but we're not going to share it with you like that's stupid It's our responsibility. I really believe in the intergenerational way of learning and sharing, and that's what I grew up with. And everybody is an ancestor, right? We can all work together. There's no walls. That's what I love sometimes. Like, I can learn something from a little kid, or I can learn something from somebody older, or somebody who's not from my socioeconomic or my interest group, whatever. Like... Learning is so abundant and it's all around us, but we've compartmentalized it and put it in silos so that, you know, like if I had a PhD, I'd have more gravity than if I'm just some like, you know, land-based artist with these (laughs) thoughts. (laughs) If we just try to, I mean, we do try to homogenize people, but if we just try to give people equity and equality, that goes a long way. And listening. And listening. Yeah. That goes a long way. Yeah. So let's let's go back to where we started, where you started, which was, it's about relationships, reciprocity. What makes your future look bright? That we take pride in being able to go forth with a shared legacy of care and compassion that really is... It's about people and the planet. Thanks so much, Betty. This has been lovely. Thanks, Heather. It's a joy. Carpick is an artist. We spoke at her home in Thunder Bay. I highly recommend that you Google her name, seek out something she's organizing, check out what she's put on Instagram. She is... She's amazing. And so was that conversation. In so many ways. It just resonated with me. But he counsels that we slow down. That we take things day by day, mindfully, putting down what we don't immediately need, 
only carrying what we can really afford to carry and really paying attention to the beauty and the joy and the opportunities to meet people and and talk and help out one another that are right outside our doorstep. She called it a practice. I think I need to practice her practice. It is easier said than done, you know. It's easier to, to just carry around your purse and, and let it keep filling up with things you might need and never get around to extracting again until it hurts to swing it on your shoulder and, and you can't find what you're looking for when you open the thing up. Slowing down. Slowing down is kind of radical. And, and valuing the joy in our lives. I think that's hard too, right? It's easier to kind of value and, and hold close to your heart the things that worry you, the things that fret you, the things that you can share with other people as being very worrisome. But valuing the joy, pulling that in close to your heart, giving it the space and the time in your conversations and your thoughts, it is a practice. It's, it's pretty radical. And I'm with Betty. I don't think it's just good for our state of mind. I think it's good for our world. It's building those relationships and clarifying our values. Betty's commitment to joy is so inspiring because she shared it's not a naive thing. It's not for lack of sorrows in her life or even lack of firsthand understanding of just how cruel and foolish our world can be. She knows firsthand the devastation of extractive colonial attitudes, normalizing the destruction of this one and only precious planet. The kind of damage that flooding for hydroelectricity wreaked on her family, her community, on Lynn Lake, South Indian Lake, whole area of northern Manitoba that had been healthy and happy and sustainable outside that colonial system for generations beyond count. It's not okay. What we are doing today by our everyday choices of what we do do and, and what we leave undone. Betty said it's our shared legacy. We are all contributing to things that are not okay. And rather than feeding the fury, Betty suggests focusing on what is right in front of us. Joy, beauty, possibilities, connections, slowing down, speaking up, that kind of ownership of our own lives and spaces and autonomy will make us all happier, but also it's our responsibility as ancestors, building a legacy together, honoring the gift of simple things that are, that are right outside our door and inside our days, and celebrating, learning and sharing intergenerationally. Man, Betty... That conversation lifted my heart in so many ways, a perfect way to wrap the final edition of this season of Something Different This Way Comes. Something different this way comes, yes, something different this way comes, yes, something different this way comes, yes, something different this way comes. And speaking of conversations that lift my heart, I invited my sons Ben and Sam to join me for a, a season finale conversation, reviewing a key point from each of the nine episodes this season together as a family to bring it home. 
this is my final edition of this season. There'll be another season. Mm-hmm. But thank you for agreeing to help me kind of review and summarize to be a grand wrap. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. So let's start with the conversation I just played was with Betty Karpik. I called it the Being an Ancestor edition because Betty Karpik recommends that we all really think about what we do day to day because what we choose to do, every little decision, is adding up to being our legacy. However young you are today, one day, the world you're leaving behind will be an ancestor's legacy. So she recommends slowing down and being thoughtful, really thinking about your day before you step out into it. Only bring what you need and what's worth carrying and give yourself time to stop, talk to the people you see, notice the wild wonders along your way. Because that way, when you get to the end of the day, what you most wanted to get done will have happened. And what did happen, you'll have noticed. As opposed to, you know, days that get away from you. And you get to the end and you go like, whoa, what happened to it? I was going to get this done and that done and all I got done was this. What does that make you think of? Well, I mean, I have had so many days where the day just gets away from me. I just go to bed and like, well, that was awfully disappointing. Yeah, I, I really think it's, I really related to that. And I think that would be a great idea. I could totally try it. I kind of relate to it but also kind of don't. Because for me, there's definitely days where it totally gets away from me, and at the end of the day, I'm just like, did I just do one thing all day? But I don't have the thing like, wow, I was going to do this, 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 and this, this, and all I got done was this, because I really don't make plans for a day. I just, like, I do what I want when I want to, and yeah. Sounds like, you know... A good life as a kid is doing what you want. So last week in the Getting to Know Home edition, I talked to Lena McKellar, and and we talked about how really fixing climate change means changing systems and the way whole groups of people do a shared project together, which is tricky. An analogy I'd like to give you is like, you know when we've we've gone to a group dance, a contra dance, like a square dancing? And everybody in the room is figured out what the pattern is and and together we're completing that pattern. So trying to change a system that is necessary for day-to-day functioning of our society is kind of like suddenly changing up that pattern in the middle of the dance. If some people follow the instructions, okay, we're going to do it differently now, and the other people just stick with doing what they know how to do, it could be pretty messy on that dance floor. So what Lita said is the way to get a whole system to work is to take the time to really talk to each person working in the system so that they can imagine how things are going to change. And then when you say, okay, let's make that change, everyone's a part of it, right? It's kind of like we know this dance and the next dance, and we can just shift when we hear the music change. So her advice, I think, boiled down to look at the people working within the system, get them to help inform the changes, and we can all work together to change the system with minimum bumps and bruises and conflict. So how does that idea make you feel? It really makes me think about how we could coordinate things a lot better. How about you, Sam Sam? It definitely makes me feel like um, that at first I thought, yeah, the way we're doing stuff, it's pretty good. Definitely could use some changes, but it's decent. But now hearing that, I realize 
man, what we're doing is quite flawed. Like, we could have easily done this much better. So now it's time to change the song. Yeah. If it's that easy, why haven't we done it yet? Well, I wouldn't call it easy, but it's not impossible, that's for sure. And speaking of not impossible, in the Times Change edition, which was with Muriel Squires, you guys got to be part of that, so you kind of remember, we talked about how times change. Really big things have happened over time, including, for instance, in her lifetime, diseases that killed kids and families when she was a kid have basically disappeared thanks to vaccines. So what would you like to see change in your lifetime? One thing that's sort of kind of really obvious and is also sort of kind of really the whole point of this podcast is climate change. I want it to be changed as in I don't want it, period. I don't want it. I don't, I don't want it to exist. It, it, I want it gone. So right now, the goal of everybody's talking about is that by 2050, we will finally stop putting more carbon into the atmosphere than we take out of the atmosphere. But that doesn't mean we've yet gotten back to a balanced space, right? And by 2050, that is 28 years from now. Like you, Sam, will be 39 years old. And you, Ben, will be 41 years old. So that's where we're currently aiming to get to net zero. But what you're saying, Sammy, is you'd want to get past net zero to drawing it down, changing enough that we're actually solving the problem and not just lessening it. Yeah, and I personally, I believe that that's not too optimistic. I've heard that they've actually already done the science, that we know how to do it, And that at first, it's going to cost more, but it'll actually be cheaper in the long run. And that begs the question, why haven't we done it yet? What do you think, Ben? What would be a change you'd like to see happen in your lifetime, a really big change? Well, in my opinion, there are three main changes I'd really like to see. One of them is obviously fixing climate change. The other is putting a lot more trust in our systems, just systems in general. I think one I can easily think of is school systems, as they have a lot of weird things banned because one bad thing happened that was mildly associated with it. No wearing scarves because a kid at one point accidentally choked on a scarf. No standing on snow hills because they might get a pull whittle concussion or something. So what you're saying is having systems be more based on trusting one another. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, at this point now, if some kid um, was walking, tripped on a stone, got a concussion, they would ban walking from the school. (laughs) So how would people get around if walking's deemed too dangerous and risky? I don't know, they'd roll, but then they'd hit their head on a wall, and then that'd be banned too. Eventually, they'd go to school... A bird would then land on their head, the claws would go into their her head, they'd start bleeding, and then nobody would be allowed to go to school because that's just too dangerous. Or they could ban birds, stones, and walls. <laughs> so to go back to where we're at today, today you feel like we don't have enough trust in one another and it makes things not work very effectively or efficiently. So you would like to see that change and see, feel like in your everyday life, you're trusted a lot of the time to be doing your best to be a pretty good person. What's the third thing you'd like to see change? The third thing I'd really like to see a change in is a lot more honesty. Just, 
I feel like we have a lot of systems that are built around looking the best they can. Less of society obsession with perfection. Like, it seems like whenever we find food or something that just doesn't look right, we always tend to, like, throw it out or something. I even had one crazy friend. We were eating a sandwich in their kitchen. This big old horsefly lands on mine. Just does its weird little dance where it rubs its back legs and all that stuff. And flies off. The mom notices and immediately takes the sandwich and throws it away. Excuse me? Yeah. So just a little more reasonableness. That that life is imperfect. People make mistakes. But we shouldn't be wasteful. And we shouldn't be too afraid or too careful to let people do things because they might not do them perfectly. Yeah. Did you think of another thing you'd like to see change? Well, to add on to what Ben said about food, you shouldn't go all out on that and say, I've heard some people say, oh, food doesn't need to look pretty or taste good. It's just fuel. But if you really think that, Why are you not eating bugs? Um, bugs, they have great protein, but they taste horrible. And personally, if there's something that's mandatory for me to have, but I have some leisure and in the way I have it, I want to make it as enjoyable for myself as I can. That's my opinion. So, I'll go eat with my family, and you can go along and eat your bugs. Now let's talk about Summer Stevenson. In the Greening Cities edition, she said, the science is done, the path is mapped out, Thunder Bay, how we can become carbon neutral. Plan is clear, you're going to go electric, generate renewable energy, invest in energy conservation, invest in climate risk mitigating infrastructure, and build up denser neighborhoods so people walk and bike and bus more. And she said, the sooner we get to it, the cheaper it will be, like you were saying, Sammy. So what do you think about that? Well, that sounds really great, no. But if that's true, why am I not noticing things around in the city? If they know it, and they know it's beneficial, why haven't they done it? Yeah, I do tend to notice. Whenever, like, a higher power tries to tackle climate change, they're like, this is a crazy urgent thing we need to complete in the next ten years, and it's like... We will complete it by 2050. And then, like, it takes them five years to, like, install an electric charging station at a gas station. Like, congratulations. You didn't really do that much. Now let's talk about the next edition, the People in Your Neighborhood edition with Charlotte Robinson. She was highlighting how generous and creative and hardworking people are. With climate change, it's stressing out global supply chains and also big international corporate systems. Local can do itness, homegrown solutions, local businesses can make more of a difference now than ever. And she talked about how buying local means investing in not just our local economy, but our local security. So, how do you guys feel about supporting local business? Or now that you're working, working for a local business well one thing that i know is let's say you're going to this really great place and it's amazing you just love it but like no one knows about it 
and for a while you were enjoying it and like, oh, this is so nice. It's all for me, my little spot. But then, since not enough people are going there, it goes out of business, and it's replaced by another Tim Hortons, another McDonald's, another Wacky Wings, another another chain food restaurant. The, those companies, they don't need to spread anymore. They are all over the world. I think every city there should be maybe one chain food restaurant. There does not need to be more than that. Cause think about this. Let's take Amazon for example. If you have a problem with their service, and you tell them about that problem, what they're most likely going to be like is, "Oh, that's that's too bad." But we have a whole bunch of other stuff that we're really busy with, so we can't focus on you one customer out of our a million. But on the other hand, if you went to a small business and you had a problem with how they're doing it, and you went to them, since they're a small business. They will actually help, and they have a relationship with you. Like their kid might go to school with you, their grandma might, you know, be friends with your dad. Like, who knows? The odds are better that there's reasons for them to do their very best, because there's more ways they might catch up on them if they don't. Yeah, absolutely. So, how about you, Ben? How do you feel about supporting local businesses and maybe even working for one? I love the idea of working and supporting local businesses. Local businesses are an important part of our culture, so that whenever you go out for a treat, you're tasting originality and not McChicken. <laughs> and as well, I would love to work for a local business and maybe one day even start my own. Why? Well, mostly because I'll be able to make my own decisions on how how I want to run the business. And mostly because I won't have an excuse to complain about how my a shop is run. <laughs> that autonomy that we talked about. So, the next edition that、um, I want to talk about is actually one where I did a lot of the talking. <laughs> how important it is not just to vote, but to help whoever's been asked to、um, make decisions that affect many people understand how those decisions are working. So, if you're a politician and you're coming up with a law, how is that law actually working out on the front line? If you have a firsthand experience and you let them know, that's like gold. That's just such a generous civic thing to do, and we're all part of multiple systems, right? So, I like to write letters to my colleagues at work that are in charge of things that I'm having experience with, and give them some feedback and some suggestions as to what make things work better. In the same way, I write to our Municipal elected authorities and provincial and and federal. I believe in the power of the pen and the power of conversation. Now you guys don't get to vote yet, and and you don't yet have employers and colleagues, but you are part of school systems. And you were talking just earlier about things that you've seen, whatever the reasons they might have put those rules in place. You don't feel like they are perhaps worth the. Cost of of obeying that rule versus the risk that they're supposed to address, or they might not be working as intended. Like Ben with your line about we need to keep the children safe, so we'll have to stop all walking next time somebody trips on a rock if it's a bad enough trip, right? Yeah. Yes, that would avoid more such accidents, but at what cost? 
Yeah, yeah. To elaborate on the point, I also think it's really important to make sure that systems allow you to do the most you can and to learn it at a young age. But you were talking about wanting to be trusted more. And when you're trusted with things, sometimes you make mistakes. You can learn through mistakes. So I feel like what you're saying is you wish that the school system you knew so well gave you more opportunities to try things that you might not succeed at, even if you sometimes get hurt, because that's a learning you would benefit from. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, I noticed that larger, um, I guess you could call school a business, I don't know, larger groups tend to generalize their students' or employees' behavior. Like, one kid or employee makes a mistake, well, I guess they're all stupid then. Right. The rules were put in place to protect against a specific thing so it would never happen yeah. again. The effect is you're being told you're stupid and can't be trusted, yeah. which is an expensive cost. Yeah. One really dumb kid manages to mess up and, well, the effect really lasts. So, Sammy, have you thought of another thing that, that you've experienced where a lot was lost in an effort to save kids from particular risks? Well, when you play outside during the winter, during the summer it's not that bad. You can do a bit of rough housing if the teachers aren't watching. Um, but in the winter, there's a rule that there's no snow off the ground. Do you know how much potential they just threw into the void? I guess they did it so that, oh, if you have a snowball fight, someone might get slightly hurt. But, like, the thing is, they should make it a rule that no ice off the ground. Sure, someone was playing with a snowball fight, and once someone got hurt, so they were like, no snowball fights, ever. That can never happen. But it's not just snowball fights that you can do by picking up snow. Like, if you're making a snowman, how are you going to get the, the head or the torso on without the picking up the snowball? How are you going to lift your feet without any of the snow sticking to your boots? Yeah, another thing, I think schools put that kind of stuff in place not because they're just being dumb, but because they're terrified of a parent coming to school with a crying child being like, my son has been found in a terrible snowball fight. He got snow down his back. How could you do this? And they don't want to be liable for that kind of stuff for crazy overprotective parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the school who's being very careful and very worried about the capacity of kids to uh, recover and understand and build relationships with one another. It's a general underestimating. But thing is, another problem with the overprotective parents, it's not like the children are really fighting against that, because if the parent is doing that, the child is going to learn that that's how it goes. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how it should be. The more overprotective a parent is, the more overcautious a child is when he grows up. Okay. So now the next one. In Food Futures with Brendan Grant of Sleepy G Farms. Brendan said first and foremost that Thunder Bay is really lucky. We have more stability of climate than many other places around the world. Our growing season is going to keep getting harder, but not as much hard as other places might experience. 
And we can easily feed ourselves. We could grow all the food we need here without too much trouble at all. What he really talked about, though, that, that stuck with me afterwards was he wishes and he hopes that we figure out how to value food more. Value it as something not just essential to life, but something beautiful, a great opportunity to, to be together and to experience something that tastes good and smells good and looks good and all the rest. So what do you guys think? If, if we in our everyday lives, if Thunder Bay as a whole were to value food more, what kind of ways would you like to see that in, in our everyday lives? Well, as I've said previously in this exact episode, do not, do not think, oh, it's just fuel, so it doesn't have to taste or look good. Okay. Personally, I can think of, for instance, one of my pet peeves is that you guys have to bring your lunch to school. It can't be refrigerated, can't be reheated. There's no real cutlery provided to you at your school. Whereas Ben, where you go to school, there is a cafeteria, the kids cook the food, there's actual cutlery as an option. I feel like Ben's school values food more than your school does. And if we were to value food more, we'd have more kitchens, more time together eating together, even at shared places like school. That's why I'm excited to go to Laverandre. Honestly, I think we really do value food at Laverandre. We get amazing stuff there. We even got fried chicken once. Oh my God, it was amazing. <laughs> but I think that might also be a bit of a trust issue because maybe they think, oh, you can't let kids have knives or forks because they're pointy and they could hurt someone. Then why do they use utensils at home? And also, they worry about allergies. And also, we try to spend as little money as possible on schools because they're expensive. And maybe doing something with enough staff to manage the allergies, la la la, is not something we're willing to spend money on. So I think when Brendan said, I'd like to see us valuing food, he also means we should spend more of our time and money on it. And we should also know what the value of food is by growing more food. I would definitely, from experience, definitely recommend more people grow their own food. It is way cheaper. But also growing your own food, I'm saying you value it because it doesn't just do itself, right? You have to make sure it gets enough water and do some weeding and harvest it at the right time and know how to keep it so it doesn't go bad and not have to throw it out because it went rotten at the back of the fridge because you didn't plan for your meal. Yeah, it tastes better knowing that you're the one who made it. And it feels better eating something that you know you made if you worked hard on it. And it's also cheaper. How about you, Ben? You've gotten to be more and more comfortable as both a cook and as a gardener. How do you think people should value their food? Going back to my earlier point, I really have to say, stop throwing things up just because there's one slight imperfection. Like, just stop. Yeah, if you go to a store and you want to buy carrots, they're just going to have the ones that look perfect. Personally, I think when they're not that perfect carrot shape, if they have a whole bunch of different twists and spikes and like, I think I once got a, got a carrot that looked like a trident. That was really cool. They are way cooler and it's not like they don't grow those. 
They just don't sell those, and I doubt that they even use them. I find it more likely that they just throw them out. Okay. All right, so now I'm really going to make you guys work. So here's what I want you to do. In Tips for Changemakers, Aaron Beagle said, if you want to help make things happen, you need to think about the other people that are involved in making things happen. And you need to respect what they're saying to help them imagine this change and decide that they enjoy it too. They, they think it's a good idea as well. There's something in it for them. She called it get to the yes and respect the yes. Those were her f- summaries. So I thought it would be cool if we imagined a change in Thunder Bay that was a whole new thing we haven't seen before. And Sammy's the guy who's going to where it's going to happen and talks to Ben who lives there and introduces him to the idea and helps him kind of get over or be reassured with his immediate concerns when he first hears about it. Okay, so I'm going to set the scene. You ready? It's a street that has a boulevard down the middle that's just a grassy verge right now. And instead, um, the city has decided to put in a solar garden. You remember where there's solar panels that are feeding the grid renewable energy and the space underneath is full of crops of food that's being grown and maintained and weeded and is going to help feed the city. So a solar garden's being installed where a guy is used to seeing outside his front door a grassy verge. You ready? Knock, knock, knock. Oh, who's this? Hello, my name is Sam, and I'm here to inform you about the solar garden that we're planning on making on the traffic medium in front of your house. Okay, wait, what's a solar garden? A solar garden is basically solar panels and a food garden in one. Huh, never heard of one of those before. Well, um, I can send you a links to other cities that have used these. Um, that's a great idea, but I have a few questions. Like, wouldn't this attract pests, like rats and stuff? We would not want that for this city. So we will try our hardest to make sure that this does not attract any more pests than the amount of pests the garden in front of your house attracts. Oh, okay. But will this retain my property value? Why do you think it would um, lessen the property value? Well, for one, it would make it considerably more busy, make it a lot louder. And as well, it would also make it so that potentially... As this is a garden, it might smell a little bit funky, if you know what I mean. Well, we would make sure the people who maintain it try and keep quiet. And it would not have to be that many people to maintain this. Plus, it would be nicer to look at than the grassy verge. Yeah, that... that Wow. Wow, that's really, really cool. I, I actually really am on board with this now. Okay, guys, you you did a great job at that. That was really good imagining your way through a let's get to yes conversation. Well, I mean, I mean, I could have done better, <laughs> considering we have the cat right here and he's very distracting. All right, well, thank you for that, guys. So final wrap up, we're going to go back to the very first episode, the Genesis episode, where I told the story of how David Attenborough's film that was really trying to make sure everybody watching understood how climate change is hurting our planet and not enough is being done, made Ben cry 
and made me realize that I too am really anxious about climate change. And so in that first episode, I asked you guys to imagine the change you really look forward to seeing happen right here in Thunder Bay. So here we are nine weeks later. After our conversation today, how are you feeling about the future and climate change? I don't understand how what I'm about to say is even possible. But I'm even more hopeful than the other times that I have said that I feel much more hopeful. No, I actually feel really, really good about our future. And hopefully some like big important people might hear this podcast and like do something about it. At least give some explanations, like Yeah. Yeah, I feel a lot better now. I was I'd kind of cooled off after a while, but yeah, I'm feeling a lot better now. A lot more confident. It's good to know that we know what to be done. And now we just need to talk more about it so it actually feels inevitable and positive and pressing. Yeah, I really feel like this whole podcast has really just let me fume off and let let all the things I've been thinking and not saying out. I think it was good to vent. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Something different this way comes, yes. Something different this way comes, yes. Something different this way comes, something different this way comes. (laughs) Ben and Sam are my children. They make me so proud and humble. (laughs) And that's a wrap. The final conversation of season one of Something Different This Way Comes. Thank you for listening and for joining me on this journey of of heart medicine and context. I'll be back with season two through October and November of this year. That is the plan. And if you have any ideas, if you have any suggestions, I would love your help in planning that journey. If you think of a person or a place, or an organization, a book or a magazine or a movie that could inform me, that would be fabulous. I have to admit, I did ask a lot more people to be guests than agreed to be guests because they don't know about this podcast and they don't know me. So who were my guests was was a little bit limited by people who know and trust me. So if there are people that know and trust you that might be willing to talk to me because you introduced us, man... That would so broaden and deepen what we can say here and what we can learn and how we can be connected. So I would be honored and and so delighted. The way to connect with me most easily is through the website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. You can reach me directly through that, and, and I would be so delighted. So let me summarize again. Because of Something Different This Way Comes... I'm rolling into three months before the next season with some goals. I'm going to slow down. That's my goal. I want to pay attention and unplug. That's a goal. I want to find the courage to connect again with people. 
Arno and I, for example, are planning a block party this summer to gather our neighbors together and, and share food and some fun and reconnect. And that was not an easy decision for us. We were remarkably apprehensive because we're kind of out of practice. And I don't think there's ever been a block party on our particular street, at least not within the last 60 years. So it's, it's a new thing. But um, I think it's a good idea. I got to walk the talk, really. And I, in my time, will keep writing my truth to decision makers. We as a family are going to continue eating local and shopping local as much as we can. We just want to support that powerful force in our community for good. And we're going to make meaty, generous conversations a part of our everyday lives. That's my goal. And I will try to turn off my worrying worries more often and pay attention to what's right outside my door. And I will think about season two, what journey it will trace, what medicine it will offer, worth sharing with you. Finally, I'm going to have a song for you. I'm going to try at least. This is actually a challenge put to me by my cousin Bill. He wants something he could sing along with that summarizes all the key takeaways from the whole season. Not a small ask, Bill. But I got some ideas. So I'm going to give that a go. Bring you a new song for season two. And before we bring it all home, I need to say a last thank you to Leah McKay, to David Gutnick, and Arno and Ben and Sam, and all the people who subscribe to the newsletter. That was really great. I ask you please to recommend the podcast now that you know what it entails all the way from beginning to end see if there's not a few more listeners who might get something out of it I would love that and I hope you join me again come October for season two of Something Different This Way Comes Something different This way comes something Something different Something different Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different